All right, live, or very close to live, from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, this is the QTR Podcast. How the hell is everybody today? Everybody having a good day? Good morning. Happy to see you. Happy to hear you. Happy to have you with me, whether you are one of the Canadian truckers listening in your cab on your iPod. Do iPods still exist, by the way? Or iPhone? Or you're just out for a jog, or you're sitting around playing some drinking game that you've created with regard to my podcast, like maybe every time I do a Trump impression, you got to drink two shots. I would like that. I would be honored if somebody did that, actually. Whatever you're doing, I'm happy to be with you. You're happy to be with me. Let's get on with the goddamn show. This is the QTR Podcast. This podcast, like all of my podcasts, is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out my patrons. I'll give you two rules for the podcast, and then we're going to get on our merry way. Stalling while I pull the list up. That's what I was just doing. (laughs) This podcast brought to you by my friends at JM Bullion, my exclusive gold and silver providers. They are the only place I buy my gold and silver. I love JM Bullion. I've uh, had them as uh, supporters of the podcast for years now. It's the only place that I have purchased gold or silver bullion over the last couple of years. They turn my orders around very quickly. They have plenty of inventory, and they're a pleasure to do business with. If you're a little skittish about buying gold or silver bullion online, you can always just email Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. She's there exclusively for QTR podcast listeners. Let her know that we sent you and that you'd like to know uh, what's up. If you have any questions, she'd be happy to help you out and just get you on your merry way to getting the gold and silver that you may need when the whole thing goes to shit, which, judging by the last couple of weeks, probably won't be too much longer. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Doomberg, the Doomberg Terminal, the former name. Now, the artist formerly known as the Doomberg Terminal, now I'm being instructed they're only called Doomberg. I'm going to call them whatever I want because it's my podcast, my rules. I wrote the Doomberg terminal here. I'm too lazy to change it, so that's what it's going to be. doesn't matter. What it is is fantastic, astute analysis, one of my favorite new substacks to read in the world of finance. They look at things through an Austrian lens. They look at things through a skeptical lens, just like us. I love reading Doomberg, and the best part about it is it is 100% free. I'm always retweeting their shit, not because they support the podcast, although that helps. <laughs> no, but honestly, I was genuinely uh, enjoying reading uh, their material before they even supported the podcast. And so uh, I would check out Doomberg, 100% free to read. The link is in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my buddy George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. I just put up two exclusive fringe finance interviews with George Gammon about everything from the Fed to the dollar to COVID to whatever you can think of. They are on my blog, Fringe Finance. But before you go see that, make sure you sign up for Rebel Capitalist Pro. George has teamed up with Lynn Alden, Brent Johnson, and Chris McIntosh, and a whole host of other professionals that have way more money than I do and are much smarter than I am to bring you Rebel Capitalist Pro which is essentially all the resources you would need to preserve wealth in a world of -of out-of-control central banks, as George says. They have a wonderful forum that I love following. I love following Lynn Alden stuff specifically, specifically her model portfolios. Check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. Link is in the podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by 
my dear friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. The Steam Room is the original gangster of following Options Flow, the piece of software that you need to have if you want to read tape, if you're into market psychology, if you want to track where the money is going in the markets, which usually can portend further moves uh, in the equities market, usually can predict moves in the equities market, sometimes, not always, but a lot of times the big money will come into options first before an equity goes bananas. The Steam Room is a piece of software that they've been honing for 10 years that's going to help you get a vision on what's going on in the options market. These guys were doing it before anybody else, which means they got a head start on their software, which means it's way better than anything else that you can get. If you want to try any of these things for free, Rebel Capitalist Pro, Doomberg's already free, uh, the Steam Room, just reach out to these guys. Their links are in my podcast description. Tell them QTR sent you and you want a seven-day, 14-day, just make up whatever you want trial. No credit card, no nonsense, no bullshit. These people are my friends. They will make sure that you get it. Honest to God. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, my friends at Investors Underground and Traders for a Cause, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer. I have uh, an interview that I'm in the process of releasing with Jay Mintzmeyer about the state of shipping. Last time I talked to him was back in October of 2021. A lot has changed, so half of that interview I think is out now. The other half will be forthcoming. My friend Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camila Soul. Some of my founding members of my fringe finance blog, Kashumba, Randy Carter, T. Gagliotti, Jamie and A. Farmer, my friends over at Mark Hutchinson, <laughs> Harvest Moon Research, A. Farmer, Chris, and uh, <clears throat> whatever. I think I said A. Farmer twice. What the fuck are you going to do, folks? Sometimes I'm rearranging these lists and things after I had a couple of drinks. You know, this podcast has a three drink minimum. And it is not financial advice. I'm not a financial advisor. I have no licenses, no registrations. I'm not qualified to do anything in the world of finance. I named my blog Fringe Finance specifically because I don't want you to read it. I don't want you to take my advice. Please do your own research. Consult somebody in a fucking bow tie if you have any questions, okay? Because I'm not the guy. If you have finance questions, ask them. If you have other questions about life, find a therapist, ask them. Uh, just leave me alone in general, uh, and please don't listen to anything I have to say. With that being said, here's what I want to talk about today. Really, so much to talk about since my last podcast, so I want to update everybody on what the hell has been going on. Uh, almost immediately after I released my last podcast, I wrote an article about uh, Kathy Wood moving the goalposts on how she posts her performance for her flagship ARC fund. Uh, the article was called Kathy Wood Keeps Moving the Goalposts. See what I did there? Uh, basically, the article points out that after ARC has been you know, thrashed this year, uh, Wood has changed how she displays the fund's performance on its website, it used to be a year-to-date number, and uh, and that all of a sudden switched to a five-year rate of return a couple days ago, or a couple weeks ago. It marks the second time in the last couple of weeks that Wood has made a drastic change in language she has used relating to her performance. This one was changing the language relating to her historical performance, and you remember back in December... She put out that blog post talking about her predictions for the ARKK fund over the next five years, which were that, you know, it was going to return 40%. And after she was ridiculed publicly on television for saying that, 
and on Twitter, mercilessly. She then went back and edited that document to say, oh, well, instead of 40% from my ARC fund every year, uh, the ARKK Innovation Fund, it's going to be 30 to 40% and across a broad range of strategies, which just... You know, if you got half of a brain, has to lead you to believe that she's just making the shit up. Because you can't go from predicting 40% per year for one fund to, oh my bad, I meant 30 to 40% across all my funds that quickly. You know, ostensibly what she wants people to believe is that she has performed some type of analysis that has led her to the 40% conclusion. But you can't just go back and change, you know, 10% which is a huge change when you're talking about an annualized rate of return over five years, and then just completely change where you're getting it from. Not Oh, not from one fund, probably across all nine of my funds. Just goes to show you there was probably very little work put into that figure when she first put it out there. Um, And now, unsurprisingly, as she continues to squirm in the midst of like a 50% drawdown from uh, the innovation fund's highs uh, last year, which I think were around 140. She's now changing other marketing material on her website where, you know, if she had kept it the way it was last December, it would be forced to say that ARC is down, whatever, 20% year to date. But now she can still put, oh, our five-year rate of return is plus 30% or whatever it is. Pretty soon, though, if ARC continues to plunge the way that I think it's going to, There's going to be, you know, there's not going to be enough fuckery left in the bag of tricks to uh, put a coat of paint on the fund's performance to make it look anything other than what it has been over the last four or five months, which is atrocious. And so if you share my belief that as long as the Fed holds what they're going to be doing, if they don't, you know, if we don't see a Powell pivot, which is essentially... Uh, you know, a chicken shit, cowardly, I don't have a backbone move. Uh, I'm scared of watching the equity markets fall 10%, so I need to come out and say something to comfort the markets. If we don't see that, I'm expecting markets to continue to fall. I wrote yesterday, I would really expect to see 40 or 50% lower from the all-time highs if the Fed doesn't change course. And predominantly, in my opinion, that fall is going to be led by a collective bag of equity horseshit that is, uh, you know, that contains many names that the ARK Innovation Fund owns and many high flyers in the NASDAQ companies that are so far away from real reality that even after a 50% plunge, they could still probably fall another 50% and still probably be overvalued. And that's what's really sick about the bubble we're in is, you know, we see this 20%, 10%, 15% drawdown from highs wherever we're at. Let me, let me think. Uh, yeah, we're probably like 20% off all time highs right now. And people think, oh, the bear market's here. You know, we've seen the worst of it. But the fact of the matter is, you know, I wrote about this yesterday. I wrote a little piece, a tiny little note that I called, it's starting to feel like time for a limit down morning. And the point of that was just to remind people that, hey, don't lose your focus here over the last couple of days where we've seen a rally. And who knows why we've seen a rally? I think it's a combination probably of short covering, 
probably of people that are already conditioned to buy the dip over the last decade. So they think, why can't I just do that now? And I'll tell you why, because the Fed doesn't seem to want to alter its course. There is a huge difference between a buy the dip on any stock mentality in an environment where the Fed is providing pornographic amounts of liquidity on a daily basis and trying to attempt that strategy in a market where the Fed is tightening and raising rates. They are essentially polar opposites. The only reason buying the dip without paying any attention to fundamentals worked is because the Fed was the rising tide that lifted all boats. Well, right now, the Fed is the falling tide that is uh, ruining all boats. I don't know what a good analogy is. The Fed is the hurricane that is going to take the boats and whisk them away in a tornado of reality if they continue down the path that they're on. Uh, it's just that most people don't see that. And as the tide is lowering, they're kind of expecting that, hey, it'll rise again. It'll rise again. There's a Powell put. There's a Powell pivot. We've seen it before. The guy's chicken shit. The Fed is chicken shit. And so they're banking on that. So, and look, I don't necessarily disagree with them that the Fed is chicken shit and that they're spineless because I've been watching it over the last 20 years. Anytime somebody fucking like farts the wrong way, they come in and lower interest rates again. It's just ridiculous. Uh, and so we'll have to see what happens here. The only difference now is that they've got this inflation thing to deal with, which really, you know, with real rates at minus 7%, you really could be properly fucked in terms of options of what to do if you're the Fed. And I think that they're going to feel forced to raise rates. And, you know, a lot of people speculating about a 50 basis point hike. I wouldn't be surprised if they did it. Uh, that's the kind of firepower they're going to need if they really want to break the back of inflation, to use the terms of uh, Paul Volcker. Except the only problem is with real rates at, uh, you know, minus 7%, uh, I don't even, you know, to think about what the Fed would need to raise rates to to get inflation under control is frightening because, you know, if you think about rates even going over 2 or 3%, I just don't know how anybody anywhere services their debt. Speaking of which, the United States recently crossed the $30 trillion mark in our national debt, so let's give ourselves a giant round of applause for being total gluttons. By the way... I wanted to go over this uh, video I saw yesterday. My friend Phil Bach, who's a great follow on Twitter. I don't have his shit in front of me, but uh, if you just search for Phil B-A-K, nice guy and a good follow, pointed out this video. Oh, he's at Phil Bach. Imagine that. At P-H-I-L-B-A-K. Phil Bach fucking pointed out this video yesterday from the St. Louis Fed. The St. Louis Fed is doing damage control on the national debt. They put out a video explaining why the national debt doesn't matter. The video is called, Does the National Debt Matter? It's two minutes long, and uh, it features an economist trying to explain away why the national debt doesn't matter. David Andolfato an economist with the St. Louis Fed. Listen to this fucking guy. I'm going to see if I can get this thing to play. Where's the goddamn speaker? I'm doing this uh, manually, so if it sounds like shit, it's not my fault, and uh, shut up about it. All right, so hang on. Let's see. I think a lot of people's worries about the national debt are formed from how they view debt from a personal household perspective. 
It's a very natural perspective to take. We know that as a household, if we take on too much debt, we are going to run into trouble. Now, there's at least four reasons I want to highlight why the national debt is a, is a bit different than the household debt, and its household analogy isn't really perfect. The first reason is that unlike a, a household that has a finite uh, lifespan, a government's lifespan is indefinite. And what this means is that there's really uh, no real sense in which a government ever has to repay its debt within a finite period of time. It can just continue to roll over its debt indefinitely. So the second reason is that the federal debt, it takes the form of U.S. Treasury securities. They're literally used as a form of money in the world financial system. So there's a large global demand for these Treasury securities for a wide variety of reasons. The third reason is that the U.S. Treasury security represents a legal uh, claim against U.S. dollars. Now, U.S. dollars can be printed by the U.S. government. And so there's really no economic reason for the Treasury ever to default on its promise to deliver future U.S. dollars. That's a very important property of this debt. And it's another reason that adds to the, the confidence that people have in holding this type of debt. And finally, the national debt constitutes a liability of the government. And if the government has these liabilities, these liabilities have to show up as assets somewhere else. This national debt shows up as an asset in your pension fund, for example. They are used as assets by insurance companies. They're used as assets uh, globally. But this is in no way uh, necessarily like a, a burden on our children or anything because there's a corresponding increase in, in household wealth. Those four reasons, the national debt is very different than the personal debt. What the concern ultimately boils down to has to do with inflation. As for how much is too much debt, we can't ever know what the answer to that question is, I think, until ultimately we see the inflationary pressure manifest itself. Right. Did you get all that? As my friend Phil said, I think after he said that to me, too much education and not enough common sense. <laughs> I love that. There's really no way. There's really no way we can tell how much debt is too much debt. Yeah, until we're beyond fucked. I mean, if you live in the Keynesian world, that's really the reality, right? It's like, oh, we'll let you know where the wall is when we hit it doing 250 miles an hour. It's like, well, you might be dead at that point. Yeah, well, that's okay, but if we're alive, we'll let you know this is where the wall was that we ran into. This is where the mountain was that the plane crashed into. We'll let you know right before it happens. Mayday, mayday, it's four feet in front of us, bang, we're all dead. Okay, thank you. Great thinking. Everything about that video was wonderful, starting with the assertion that governments never end. I mean, that's just completely wrong. You don't need to be fucking Noam Chomsky. You don't need to be a history major. You don't need to understand, you know, anything really to know that governments aren't infinite. They don't last forever. And that assertion to use that to justify taking on more debt is ridiculous. And really what it is is arrogant. It shows a certain arrogance. Another wonderful part of that video was the fact that, you know, we're going to rely on the confidence of the U.S. dollar, which is pretty much what he says, right? He says that, look, you know, it's a claim on you. Uh, Treasury securities are a claim to U.S. dollars. And, you know, there's plenty of confidence in U.S. dollars. So what's the problem? You know, our liabilities are somebody else's assets. It's like, yeah, until people don't want dollars anymore. He's acting as though, you know, not only that and look, you know, the, 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 the idea that the government is going to be infinite and the idea that the dollar is always going to be reserve currency probably run hand in hand, right? If you believe one, you believe the other one for the, for the U.S. But if one goes, the other one's going too. 
And so you have to ask yourself, is it possible that confidence will wane in the U.S. dollar? And is it possible that government as we know it today, whether in a decade or a century or a millennium, is not going to exist the way that it does today? And if you answer yes to either of those questions, then all of a sudden, the wonderful, fantastical, very huge brain explanation from the St. Louis Fed doesn't matter. It's just nonsense. The idea that we can take, and he really, he says here, you know, look, we can just take on as much debt as we want, and we we really don't have to think about it. It's funny because on this podcast, I've said more than once, you have to think about your government's balance sheet and wallet the same way you would think about a corporate balance sheet, the same way you would think about your personal balance sheet. And he's specifically taking on that argument and arguing against it, right? So if you personally have tons of credit card debt and you have nothing but dust in your wallet and you have no assets and your income stream is terrible, you are in a very precarious situation financially and likely are going to have to file for bankruptcy if you want to make any progress in the future, right? Same with a corporation. If Apple all of a sudden takes on a tremendous amount of leverage, its cash flow stream stops, and then all of a sudden it can't earn enough to make the interest payments on its debt, it has to file for a reorganization or a bankruptcy, same way that you would have to do personally, right? So we zoom out one more level, even on municipal levels, municipalities go bankrupt the same way, right? The too many liabilities, not enough assets, not bringing enough in in tax revenue and politicians spending enough or, you know corruption pissing through the money. Even municipalities, even states have the same issue. Although when you start getting to the state level, then all of a sudden you can start applying for federal aid. And you see when money rolls off the printing press, as it was doing during COVID, a lot of states were lining up at the trough asking for a bailout. You know, hey, we've horribly mismanaged our finances for the last 40 years. And I understand that it's a pandemic now and you're handing out $8 trillion. Can we please have $50 billion to set our shit straight? It's like that doesn't work. The moral hazard there is ridiculous. But for some reason, when you zoom out to the country, all of a sudden, all the things that matter on a personal level, on a corporate level, on a state level, no longer matter. The laws of economics are different for the country is what this guy wants you to believe. And that, of course, is nonsense. And not only is it nonsense, again, it's arrogant. It's the kind of nonsense that if you believe it with the hubris that this guy believes believes it with, then it's not going to be a surprise when we're blindsided by reality. And free markets always make sure that eventually there will be a reality check. And I think that that you know, will come for the markets and it'll come for the country. Unfortunately, I don't want it to, but I have to say, you know, I'm positioning my assets to prepare for it because I think it's an inevitability. And I think that, you know, hey, to just kind of fly blindly and wait until you hit the mountain before you take caution. Well, by then it's too late. So if anybody knows anybody at the St. Louis Fed, maybe you can get them the memo. Just a couple of days ago, I wrote an article Just a couple of days ago, I wrote an article called Three Geographic ETFs I Hope Will Sidestep the U.S. Stock Collapse. And in that article, what I was writing about were three different places that I think money may be well diversified as opposed to just having it all in U.S. stocks. Because I do think that the tech wreck that we're seeing and the plunge in equities 
is not going to be global and it's not going to be systemic. There isn't inflationary issues all over the world. I mean, there are in some places, uh, but other places, other geographic locations have it a little bit more under control. And more importantly, valuations around the world are not what they are in the U.S. You know, right now there's a Schiller P.E. of about 37, which is uh, right near historical all-time highs. It is way up there, which again, one of the metrics that I cite that makes it easy to think that stocks could still fall another 20-30% from where they are now. Um, But valuations aren't stretched like that all over the globe. And of course, this goes back to what I was saying in November of last year, that I honestly believe that valuations in U.S. tech companies got stretched the way they did through the weaponization of options uh, in the NASDAQ and in technology names. So, you know, I don't really know whether it was on purpose or nefarious or not. But look, there was a lot of money that went out during COVID. And there was an inordinate amount of call buying in a lot of technology names uh, throughout 2020 and 2021. And I couldn't help but think that the bid that was being put under the NASDAQ as a result of that uh, may be artificial and may be at risk of, you know, kind of becoming a trap door at some point. And that's why I wrote, you know, we could be staring at the face of a catastrophic NASDAQ collapse and not even know it in November. And that was before the Fed even talked about hiking. So, you know, I think that the points I was arguing in that article still stand today, but now the backdrop has changed significantly because then, you know, the Fed hadn't made any indication that they were going to raise rates because inflation wasn't yet out of control. But here we are two months later and inflation's running at 7%, you know, officially. We all know it's higher than that. And the Fed has come out and committed to raising rates. I think the major investment banks are predicting four or five rate hikes over the next 12 months. Right. And so what we're seeing in the equity markets now could only be the beginning. And I want to make another point. Somewhere I was listening to over the last week said this probably shifts podcast. But somebody made the point, look, that bull markets climb a wall of worry and bear markets slide down a slope of hope. And therein lies part of my reasoning as to think we really need a couple days of serious fear and capitulation, which I think could be coming relatively soon. Uh, That was the point of writing this article the other day about there potentially being a limit down day, right? We've seen kind of a sell-off that has taken place without any real panic yet. And I think at some point, panic is going to set in. Uh, And I think we will have a limit down day. We will see capitulation. We will see fear. And we will see panic. The sell-off as of now has kind of been this sell-off where it almost feels as though the attitude is... People expect things are going to get better. And I don't blame them because over the last 10 years, 15 years, that's been the case every time there's been a sell-off. The Fed has run to the rescue. And so if that doesn't happen, watch the Fed. If the Fed doesn't pivot, I am predicting that we are still going to see some significant selling. And not only will it be led disproportionately by tech, but I'm expecting capitulation at some point. And then... At that point, that's when I'm going to start asking myself, okay, how far have we fallen from all-time highs? 
How much further do we have to go to revert to the mean? And where are the potential opportunities here? Even though I've already written about a couple opportunities that I'm buying now, uh, but where are the uh, broader uh, tranches of opportunities? Uh, but I only want to ask that after there's been real fear. I remember in 2020, you know, after the pandemic, I started thinking about going long the day Ackman started crying on CNBC. When he said hell is coming and the market was limit down while that was happening and the market was crashing while he was saying that, he was fomenting, you know, fear in the market with that interview. I was thinking to myself, this is where I want to be buying right here. This might be the peak of the fear, but we haven't seen the peak of the fear in this sell-off or anywhere close to it yet. The X factor here, the thing that is different for those of you that have been paying attention over the last couple decades, the thing that differentiates February 2022 from all the other market sell-offs that we've had is inflation, right? Because inflation is limiting the options of the Fed to take action to couch the markets. Normally, what would happen is, again, people would expect that the Fed would come in and save the day, but their hands are really tied now in a way that they haven't been. And people are putting significant emphasis on inflation in a way that they haven't been in the past. In fact, even more important than that, it has become a political issue. And this means that it is talked about every day on all the news networks, and it is a hot-button issue and will be as we head into the midterm elections. And so everybody's going to be carefully scrutinizing what the Fed does. And that's why I believe that this time they may hold their nerve and raise rates. Geez, it's only when they're completely forced to do it and under the scrutiny of everybody in the world that they may finally do the right thing, which of course will still be a far cry from where we need to be. And that's why I think, you know, there isn't a lot of optimism for equity markets going forward, regardless of your stance on things. Uh, I think, you know, even if the Fed decides to cut and we wind up getting, you know, more inflation uh, and the markets go higher in real terms, uh, you know, not everybody is going to experience uh, wealth gain uh, in real terms. A lot of, for a lot of people, that'll just be nominal. And so it'll be interesting to see the way the Fed decides to head this month. I think people are expecting March 2022 for the first uh, set of rate hikes. We'll have to see if that if that happens. Um, already, the Fed governors this last week uh, have been kind of coming out and making these semi-dovish statements, although Powell hasn't indicated that there's going to be any kind of pivot yet. Uh, we'll have to see. They're screwed either way. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch. It's a great time to own precious metals because... You know, this is essentially, if you're precious metals long, this is essentially what you were betting on. You're betting on the fact that the Fed was at some point going to back themselves into a corner that they couldn't get out of, and they're not going to have an option to uh, to do anything with. And, you know, as an owner of gold and silver, you love to see it because then it just becomes a spectacle. You know, then it's all on TV and you'll say it's sad. Oh, are you rooting for the destruction of the country, the downfall of the country? No, I'm not rooting for it. I've been fucking speaking out against it. You know, the whole point I've been such a strident critic of the Fed to begin with is specifically because I didn't want the country to get into this situation. Well, not only were people of my ilk ridiculed and called conspiracy theorists and censored when it came to 
trying to warn about these types of situations. Uh, but, you know, now we have now we have nothing left to do but sit back and just watch. I mean, it's not as though there's anything that I can do or say today that's going to change the course of action that the Fed's on. Uh, and so what the hell else am I supposed to say except it's all kind of, you know, on television now for me. I'm just kind of sitting back on the couch clutching my ammunition and my gold bullion and my bottle of bourbon and just waiting to see what's next. And look, I hope there's a solution here. Scott Wapner tweeted the other day, Jerome Powell is going to land the plane. He's coming in for a landing. I got to find the fucking tweet. I think he blocked me anyways a long time ago. Let me see if I can find it. Ah, here it is. Scott Wapner, January 26th, 2022. Powell is a highly skilled pilot. He's telling you what the weather conditions are on the approach. Soon he'll drop the gear and come in for a landing. Just because the Fed miscalculated on inflation doesn't mean he can't get the plane down softly. Actually, Scott, it does. <laughs> That's a lovely analogy, and it would be wonderful if it was true, but if he was a highly skilled pilot, we wouldn't be in this mess to begin with, number one. And number two, specifically because the Fed miscalculated on inflation means that they can't get the plane down softly. And so I would say that I disagree with you aggressively. We'll have to see just how softly Powell can land the plane coming up. And maybe we'll get back to uh, any additional analysis Wapner wants to amend his original analysis with uh, in the coming days or weeks. I want to pivot now from our disintegrating economy to our disintegrating society and talk about COVID and cancel culture. Since the last podcast I did, there has been this huge outcry to cancel Joe Rogan. Uh, for what? For having a couple of experts on to talk about COVID. Give me a break, folks. Okay, by now you know the story. Neil Young, all right, who looks like he's 260,000 years old based on the latest photograph that I have saw and has made himself a millionaire many times over due to the luxuries afforded to him by the Constitution of the United States uh, Free Speech First Amendment, right? And Joni Mitchell also, who both made their millions as songwriters, right? Iconoclasts. They were coming out and, you know, sticking it to the man. And, you know, their free speech is what allowed them to capitalize on being, uh, you know, revolutionary songwriters and making hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, all of a sudden, they have a problem with free speech. Uh, Dr. Neil Young and Dr. Joni Mitchell are all of a sudden speaking out against uh, guests on Joe Rogan's podcast, uh, Dr. Robert Malone and Peter McCullough, both of whom are extraordinarily credentialed doctors, uh, at the very least, if their opinions stand at odds with the mainstream narrative, they are at least worth hearing out. But these two uh, old farts wanted to make a scene, and so they're trying to stick it to Spotify and saying to them, you can pull our music if you don't pull Joe Rogan, and Spotify was like, okay, and they pulled Neil Young's music. Like, by the way, he didn't even own, like, his full music catalog. He owns, like, 50% of it or whatever. You know, so, uh, okay, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, you guys are no longer on Spotify. It's not going to make a lick of difference to any of my Spotify playlists. I don't know about yours. But the idea is just ridiculous. You know, these two have made their fortune by writing songs 
and by speaking their minds. And now Joe Rogan is what? He's not telling people not to get vaccinated. He's not telling people, you know, what to do. He's just listening to the opinions of people who seem to be extraordinarily qualified. And that has generated some kind of massive outcry uh, in which these two, I don't know, maybe it's a publicity stunt. I can't even remember the last time anybody even said the words Neil Young before this. And then some other guy, you know, Nils Lundgren, some fucking, you know, oh, he's the guitarist for somebody. You know, when I saw his name, I was like, Nil. Ah, that's the amount of times I've heard his name before in the past. Nil. Nils Lundgren or Nils, Nils Lundgrand. It's like, Nils Lundgren says he's also pulling his music. Oh, oh, there's, that's going to make a huge difference for about four people in our country of 350 million people. He was the original guitarist for Bruce Springsteen. It's like, who cares? Was he Bruce Springsteen? No. You know, this is like, I go see Brian Wilson every once in a while, and they have Blondie Chaplin come up on stage. Oh, now we're going to bring up Blondie Chaplin. You know, he was integral to the Beatles, I mean, to the Beach Boys. It's like, no, he wasn't. And he does this big thing with this big guitar solo where he's like on the stage and he's dancing and like he's in front of Brian Wilson and he's hamming it up. It's like, will you get the fuck out of the way? I'm trying to watch Brian Wilson. You know, same deal. Nils Lundgren now going to come in on a guest spot on this song. Please welcome our special guest. You know, anytime a band says they're welcoming a special guest to a show, you know you're going to get some shit. And that's pretty much how they always introduce the opening bands, isn't it? It's like, tonight, you know, Genesis with special guests, the Red Rum Raiders. You know, it's always some dumb, stupid local band you never heard of. You know, and I know because I was that band for a while. I was in a band. We opened for National Acts. We were like one of the house bands that opened for National Acts. They'd always put on the tickets, you know, less than Jake with special guests. You know, I'm like, we're not that special. You know, we're not even that good. (laughs) We can't fucking play our instruments that well, you know. So uh, the point is Neil Young sucks and the special guest Nils Lofgren, whatever his name is, uh, not that important in my book. But anyways, so then you get all these geniuses out there calling for the cancellation of Joe Rogan, uh, one of whom was Joy Behar. I wrote about this uh, a day ago. Joy Behar came out and she called him a horror. He's a horror. Joe Rogan is a horror. I can't believe... I can't believe him. He's a horror. The way he sits there and listens to people's opinions. It's... It's horrifying. You know, and there was a whole chorus, a whole litany of people in the mainstream media. Joe Rogan is killing people. It's like, no, he's not. He's just sitting there at a desk. He's drinking a little whiskey, and he's listening with an open mind to what people have to say. Meanwhile... Joy Behar goes on this rant on The View, a bunch of critical thinkers on that show. And a couple days later, after Joy Behar goes on her cancel Joe Rogan rant, and actually I have it here in this article I wrote, uh, Joy Behar said uh, about Joe Rogan, she called him a horror. She's a horror. Hasn't he been also chastised and corrected and then just goes back to his craziness again? Behar said, I mean, I don't know that he can be reformed. That's what she said about Joe Rogan. I don't know that he could be reformed. Reformed? What is this? What What kind of, 
you know, brave new world are you talking about? Where people that don't share your opinion need to be reformed, Joy Behar. But then the best part was a couple days later, Whoopi Goldberg comes out and makes this comment. By the way, a couple days after she was criticizing Bill Maher, who uh, Bill Maher had said on his show, you know, look, I'm done with the COVID hysteria. I'm done with the nonsense. And Whoopi Goldberg comes out, and she's got to give her two cents on The View the next day, and says, oh, you know, Bill Maher, I don't know how you can be so flippant. That's what she says. How you can be so flippant, right? And flippant means, oh, just kind of like you just write it off. You just disregard it. People are dying, Bill Maher. How can you be so flippant as to say that you're not going to wear a cloth mask after it's already been, you know, proven that they don't work against Omicron? How dare you be so flippant? as to concern yourself with the facts. But a couple days after Goldberg says this, then Goldberg comes out and makes this comment about the Holocaust, where she says, oh, the Holocaust wasn't about race. She said it was just about people being inhumane to one another because it was two groups of white people. (laughs) That's, That's an actual comment, right? The genocide of six million Jewish people to Whoopi Goldberg... She thinks that's not about race. And then Al Franken, by the way, comes out a couple days ago and defends her and says, Whoop, everybody that knows Whoopi Goldberg knows her heart. They know that Whoopi didn't mean it. Look, she even adopted a Jewish person's last name as her stage name. It's like, yeah, so that she could break into the world of theater and film. Goldberg is a name that's like widely accepted in theater and film because Jewish people started the industry practically. And that's all of a sudden that's Al Franken's justification that she's not an anti-Semite, that she borrowed a Jewish last name so that she could get popular in the world of television and film and stage. Not sure the logic on that one makes a lot of sense, Al. May have to double check your work on that one, buddy. But anyways, so Goldberg comes out and makes this dumbass statement and then she gets suspended by ABC for two weeks. ABC says, look, probably shouldn't have said that doesn't really stand with our uh, values or whatever. I don't know, whatever these corporate entities say when they cancel somebody. And now, all of a sudden, everybody on the left is coming out and saying, cancel culture has gone too far. (laughs) I'm going to read you a little bit from my piece here that I wrote uh, just recently. It's clear that the left either doesn't understand the veracity of Goldberg's comments or simply doesn't think that they, on their holy high ground, are even capable of making such horribly off-color and offensive remarks. For example, MSNBC host Mika Brzezinski, which of course I'm seeing now I have a typo in my article, I referred to her as Mike Mike Brzezinski. Sorry about that, Mike. I need to uh, make you Mika here in a second, which I'm going to do while I'm uh, on the podcast because, you know, I'm working on company time here. All right, update. No longer Mike, now Mika. All right, back to what I was saying. (laughs) For example, MSNBC host Mika Brzezinski came out after Goldberg's suspension from ABC and lamented that cancel culture is getting so out of hand. Yeah, where the fuck were you on that one a week ago, Mika? (laughs) She continued about Goldberg She's been on TV for decades. She's been putting herself out there for decades. If you don't know her heart, then you haven't been watching. And so that's why the two-week suspension to me just seems more about this unbelievable need to punish and judge people when they've made a mistake. 
Her co-host turned beau, Joe Scarborough, added, We all make terrible mistakes. She apologized for it and immediately took corrective actions. Now I want to know, who is so frail over at ABC? And of course, the answer, Joe, is the very same viewers you and your network have been conditioning to become so frail. You know, it's almost like Joe Scarborough doesn't know that MSNBC spends entire programming days latching onto generally out-of-context fractions of comments made by anyone viewed as enemies to the Democratic Party that the network then casually attributes to, you know, white supremacy and racism with the same nonchalance uh, that they would of making small talk about the weather before advocating for the cancellation of those that they don't agree with. So, Joe, you're the one that's helping uh, perpetuate this cancel culture that all of a sudden you disagree with now that it's come for Whoopi Goldberg. Goldberg's co-hosts on The View were also reportedly furious furious about Goldberg's suspension. Anna Navarro said Whoopi is a lifelong ally to the Jewish community. She is not an anti-Semite, period. Yet these same co-hosts, notably Joy Behar, were calling for the cancellation of podcaster Joe Rogan for simply having a discussion with well-credentialed experts about an ongoing current event in the COVID-19 pandemic. He's a horror. Oh, that Joe Rogan's a horror. Talk amongst yourselves. I'm verklempt. You know, it's just funny. One of the things I wrote about was that, you know, it's almost as if the left can't see how the situation would have went down if the roles were reversed. You know, if that was somebody on the right that had made those comments, what the hell would they be saying on MSNBC? What would they be saying on The View? I think we all know, right? That would be a good mental exercise for the rocket surgeons on The View to think about. What would what would be happening if it was Donald Trump Jr.? that made these quotes. What would what would Whoopi Goldberg be saying? What would Joy Behar be saying? Would they be furious that he got suspended from his job for two weeks? Fuck no, they wouldn't. You know it. I know it. Doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. You know that that's the case. I wrote, part of the reason the left wing is taking exception with Bill Maher to begin with is the comedian's stance against political correctness and for free speech. While Maher may have lost part of his far left-wing base by keeping a cooler head and subscribing to common sense and reason, it goes to show that there's a large faction of the left, the party that used to be for freedom, and, you know, in the case of Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, used to be for being able to say whatever you want, right? We're going to write songs, stick it to the man, anti-war, anti-government, whatever they were fighting for, LSD, I don't know, it was a fucking weird time, you know, in the 70s and 80s. But I'm sure it wasn't, you know, they weren't sitting around writing songs about how everybody should be listening to what Pfizer says. You know, you imagine Neil Young in the 70s or the 60s standing on stage at Woodstock, going, bow to your corporate overlords, you know, (laughs) and the crowd roars. Yes, we will bow to our corporate overlords. No, he was up there like, take this and stick it up Pfizer's ass. You know, we don't need your fucking whatever. You know, it wasn't, people had flags. They were, my favorite, I had a Woodstock 94 CD back in the day when they did the second Woodstock, the one before, the one where Fred Durst encouraged everybody to light things on fire. But they did some like announcement in the Woodstock 94 festival where uh, the guy came over the loudspeaker and says, hey, there's a lightning storm. You know, there were like 200,000 people getting uh, sliding around in mud. I don't know if you remember, it was like a giant mud fight. At Woodstock 94, 200,000 people covered with mud, everybody out of their mind, drunk and high, 
listening to music and they make some announcement, right? Oh, there's a lightning storm coming in today. Please put your flags down. And then the guy goes, you know, we support whatever they're for. (laughs) That's what Neil Young was going for. You know, he was waving a flag for something. It didn't say Pfizer on it. I guarantee you that. Didn't say listen to the man. I guarantee you that. You know, I wrote, like Pac-Man going out the left side of the screen and coming back in all the way on the right side. So many on the left fail to see that they are guilty of the same things that they spend their days railing against. You know, and this is why you see politicians. Oh, what do we do? Everybody's got to stay home and wear a mask. Okay. Where's Gavin Newsom? He's at the French Laundry eating a $200 Kobe beef steak with his friends without wearing a mask. Oh, where's AOC? She's in Florida. At a, you know, some kind of drag club, they said, in Miami. Sitting outside, dining without a mask on. Oh, must be nice to bask in the freedoms of Ron DeSantis' Florida. By the way, don't you hate him and everything he stands for? What are you doing in that state? How about Nancy Pelosi? Anybody see her? Oh, she's at the salon that's been closed for everybody except for her. Asshole. (laughs) You know... The left fail to see that they're guilty of the same things they're railing against. What about now they're advocating for segregated dorms on college campuses? I mean, how much can you overthink a problem like racism that the solution means going back to the genesis of the problem? What are we going to do? We're going to recreate the 1950s. We're going to have different things for every color, creed, and race. It's like, aren't we trying to get past that? No, you don't even understand critical race theory. Apparently, I fucking don't. You know, as my friend Phil said about the St. Louis Fed, too much education, too much academia, and not enough common sense, right? It's possible to, like, over-educate ourselves. You know, you want to wind up like Jacques Derrida in a room trying to figure out, you know, the 62 different dimensions of meeting in the sans-serif tip of the letter T used in a text somewhere. You know, it's deconstructionism. No, it's not. You're insane. That's what it's called. (laughs) You're sitting there looking at the letter T on a sheet of paper. Well, there's hidden meaning about why the author used this letter. It's a phallic symbol. No, it's not. You're fucking crazy. I hate to tell you this, but this is nonsense. You know, sometimes it's good to stop thinking about things. You know, people go to therapy because they overthink and they overanalyze. And, uh, and, And everybody that is adopting this postmodern view of things, they all need to pump the brakes. Everybody needs to go and do some deep breathing exercises and just live in the moment. Stop worrying about yesterday. Stop worrying about tomorrow. Things aren't that bad today, with the exception of the eventual disintegration of the entire economic machine and our country as a whole. If you put those things aside, things are all right. You know, you gotta fucking unplug yourself a little bit from the academia matrix. They don't have all the answers. The universities don't have all the answers. And look, I don't have all the answers either. Sometimes they come from within. Try meditating for a half hour and see if you discover some things about yourself that you didn't know before. You know, when I get done meditating, people always say to me, oh, you say such nice things. It's like, yeah, because, you know, I have a second to clear my mind and think about the things that I'm grateful for and that I'm thankful for. And that, you know, don't get enough head time when I'm sitting around thinking about how stupid Whoopi Goldberg is. You know. And look, she thinks she's right. The difference between the left and the right, 
I understand she thinks she's right. You know, I respect her right to say whatever she wants. She may not respect my right to say whatever I want or Joe Rogan's right to say whatever he wants or Bill Maher's right to say whatever he wants, but that's the difference. You know, I res- it's it's the free speech that you don't agree with that is the most important to protect. And I'll fight for her right to say whatever she wants. You know, there you go. Here's the podium. You can stand up here and embarrass yourself publicly for as long as you'd like. Thank you. Just funneling subscribers into my blog. You know, just flying through the fucking uh, internet and making their way to my fringe finance blog. But seriously, I understand that. And I understand there's people that think that, you know, critical race theory is the answer and that COVID is Ebola and that, you know, Joe Biden is spry, you know, (laughs) I understand people think that, and I'm not really trying to change your mind. I'm not out there actively phoning you, calling you. I write a blog. You can read it if you want. You don't have to. I put stuff on Twitter. You can read it if you want. You don't have to. You know, people always say, oh, you're asking for money. I'm not asking for anything. You can subscribe if you want, and if you don't, you can keep your fucking money. I don't care. You know, I'm saying what I say. I put it out there, and I'm not trying to actively replace other people's thinking with my own. I respect the right that people have, you know, I respect the fact that people have differences of opinions and I don't want them to be canceled because of it. You know, if it were up to me, I wouldn't have canceled Whoopi Goldberg for her comments, but I wouldn't have canceled a lot of other people for a lot of other comments. You know, I think we need free speech. We need dialogue. We need people to make dumbass remarks in public. You know, that's how you push borders and push boundaries and expand thinking and generate open-minded discussion and, 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 and come up with Socratic dialogue that eventually leads to finding out the objective truths that will lead us to a more prosperous life for us and for our country and for our families. You know, speech and free speech are so important. So I respect Whoopi's right to say that, Whoopi, even though I think you're wrong. I like, too, Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan Merkel, came out and suggested that Spotify do more to combat misinformation. Let me find that headline before I go, because this one is a real gem. Talk about two people whose opinion no one really cares about. Let's see. Uh, Prince Prince Harry is going to reconcile with Prince Charles. Who gives a fuck? Here's the headline, Entertainment Weekly. Oh, my source of news. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle address COVID-19 misinformation on Spotify amid Joe Rogan protests. It's like, okay, who are you? Last time I saw a picture of Prince Harry, he was like naked in front of a pool table on a bender somewhere. Did you guys see those pictures a couple years ago? Like Prince Harry photographed naked at a hotel. You know, the old Hunter Biden treatment. That's what they call that. Where are you? I'm in Geneva doing lines off a hooker's ass. Take a photo, please, quick. Uh, Here it is. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are expressing their concerns over misinformation tied to the COVID-19 pandemic. These two couldn't fucking find sand if they fell off a camel. All right. And now they want to weigh in about the COVID-19 pandemic. Shortly after Neil Young pulled his music from the streaming service due to inaccuracies about COVID-19, Harry, 37, and Meghan, 40, are calling on Spotify to address the, quote, serious harms, quote, of misinformation featured on the platform. 
The couple who has an exclusive multi-year podcast deal with Spotify. By the way, they've put out like one fucking episode I read on that. They have some huge deal where they're supposed to be generating all this content. They did like one 30-minute episode. They haven't done shit since, all right? At least Joe Rogan's productive. He's putting out an episode, three-hour episode every day, all right? There's some things you guys can learn from him. Uh, The couple who has an exclusive multi-year podcast deal first contacted the company to express, quote, concerns about, quote, the all-too-real consequences of COVID-19 misinformation on its platform in April 2021. Since the inception of Archwell, we have worked to address the real-time global misinformation crisis. Hundreds of millions of people are affected by the serious harms of rampant mis- and disinformation every day, the statement began. Last April, our co-founders began expressing concerns to our partners at Spotify about the all-too-real consequences. We have continued to express our concerns to Spotify to ensure changes to its platform are made to help address this public health crisis. It's like, who the hell are you again? (laughs) Like, I I don't want to be an asshole, but who are you? Meghan Markle? Has anybody ever heard? She was some, like, reality star, I think. And from what I understand, she keeps this guy on a pretty tight leash based on the loose mainstream media mentions I've seen of the two of them over the last couple years. Now, all of a sudden, Meghan Markle is going to be the decision maker about who is giving out COVID-19 misinformation and who isn't. Most often featured in, you know, People Magazine's Who Wore It Better section. That woman. What we love about podcasting is that it reminds us, reminds all of us to take a moment and really listen to to connect to one another without distraction, Harry and Megan said. Oh, that's nice. How about you do some more podcasting? You guys apparently haven't done shit. And first of all, if you're so fucking concerned about taking a moment and to really listen to connect with one another without distraction, why don't you guys stop distracting me and the rest of the people that are trying to listen to fucking Joe Rogan's podcast without being interrupted by a bunch of whining maggots about whether or not some guy said something that might be misconstrued somewhere as misinformation. And by the way, it also might be accurate. We don't know, but it's okay because I'm the prince and I've got an opinion. Folks, I think that's going to do it for me today because I can feel myself about ready to fly off the handle, and I'm not quite sure you're ready for that at this moment in time. Maybe a couple years down the road, I'll just really let it go. I think maybe every year I get older, you know, I'll just say more and more of whatever I want. But that day is not today. You know, after all, folks, I wouldn't want to be canceled. (laughs) Go ahead, cancel me. By the way, I've done more work this week than Whoopi Goldberg, so what do you think about that? You're such a big TV and film star, your mouth got you in all this trouble, Now you're suspended for two weeks. I would like to invite Whoopi's viewers at The View to come on over to the QTR podcast where the water is warm, my microphone is on, and I am expressing my opinions without any fear of retribution from my overlords at ABC. So if you are a middle-aged woman that watches The View and can't stand people on the right, like most of you are probably that watch The View, come on over. The water's fine here. We have reason. We have common sense. We have a $9 bottle of Jacqueline's Blackberry Brandy and the same glass we've been using to drink it for the last 10 years. Come on over. The water's fine. QTR Podcast. Sign up for the Patreon. You get nothing in exchange for doing that, but it'll make you feel great. I promise. I'll, here's the deal. I'll, I will make one... One millionth of my patron proceeds for this month available to the Save Whoopi Goldberg Fund 
for her career. I'll, I'll put one one millionth of my patron money towards Whoopi Goldberg, and uh, and we'll welcome her back. We'll see if we all can't chip in and get her one Mylar balloon and half a cupcake to welcome her back in two weeks. All right, folks, I'm out of here for right now. It's been lovely, as always, but I gotta go. Peace!